Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. My name is Pastor Alex, and this morning I want to start by doing something I don't normally do. I want to share about myself. That's right, you're going to get to hear about Alexander James Moore, which is this royalty standing before you here. This is the story of a lower middle class American preacher's kid who was born on a Monday and at church on a Sunday, and I can guarantee you I was never late. Not because mom was the organ player or the Sunday school teacher, but because dad was a full-time paid staff member of the church. At the age of four, my church changed. Our family stopped going to the church we were going to and went to a new church because dad decided he was going to start a church. And in fact, the church that you're sitting in now is the church that he began in 1989. Now, growing up as a pastor's kid, there are certain expectations that are put upon you. See, people tell you that, listen, you're an example for the whole church now. You need to set the example. You're a role model. And so I have a sister 10 years older than me, and her and I, we took up this mantle of responsibility. We were going to be leaders, and we were going to set an example of what exemplary behavior looked like. And so off we began in our journey as pastor's kids living under the microscope. It was a good time. It was a good time to be alive. Um, unlike me, my, my sister knew my parents before they became Christians. And so her upbringing was just a little bit different than mine. Uh, she knew what mom and dad were like B.C., before Christ, before their life was transformed. My dad was a nightclub entertainer. Uh, my dad had been married previously and had visitation with his daughter. And, and so my sister grew up kind of in a different upbringing than I had, in which she knew what life was like before church, and then she was exposed to church, and then her perspective on Christianity and church was a little bit different than mine, who was kind of born into it. And so we both kind of embraced this role as pastor's kids, and, and like most people in our situation, over the years, we got used to the pressure of saying and doing all the right things, whether we believed it or not. But my sister, as she approached adulthood, again, she's 10 years older than me, she began to question a lot of things. And for those of you who don't know, when you're a pastor's kid, you're exposed to the good, the bad, and the ugly of church ministry. Uh, when, when your dad's a pastor and he cares for other people and other people have messy lives and messy situations, that sometimes carries into the home. And as a child, you get to see your parents wrestling with how to help others and how to pray for them and how to care for them. And as they share those burdens as a child, you get to see how that all looks and you find out really quickly that no one is perfect. Everybody is messy. Amen. 
Unfortunately for my sister, as she was growing up and who she was exposed to, she was around, quote, Christians who tended to say one thing but then do another. Never in the house. She always felt like my parents were true, but it was the people outside of the home. It was the other pastor's kids. It was those that she would go to church youth camp with who she would see maybe responding to a message at the altar call, raising their hands, crying their eyes out, you know, oh my goodness, God's awesome, only to see them a few hours later sneaking out of their dorm room to meet up with their newly found boyfriend or girlfriend. It was one thing in the service, and then it was another thing outside of it. It was a performance to win some sort of accolade or appreciation from maybe those who were older, but then the reality of the situation came out when no one was looking, and and my sister did not respect this very much. And when you couple together the hypocrisy and the duplicity that she saw in others, when you couple that with her own desire to do what she wanted, with whom she wanted, whenever she wanted, it led to my sister being the first person I ever witnessed leave the faith. And my sister leaving the faith that we were raised to believe had a profound impact on my life. Probably more profound than I understand, than my parents understood at the time, than my sister even understood. It shaped much of who I am today. My sister's departure from this faith taught me lots of things. See, for years in my life, I just simply trusted someone else's word about the reality of God. I mean, to be honest, I didn't really ever investigate it for myself, and and I kind of just believed because, well, my parents believed. Why why wouldn't I? Why would I question anything? Um, and, And And there's probably a little part of me that felt like maybe, you know, if I really brought up the questions that I had, well, that might not be very well received because, again, I'm setting an example. I'm a pastor's kid. And so I just kind of accepted what my Sunday school teachers taught me. And while that may have been acceptable during my childhood, as I approached adulthood, it proved to not be enough. And my sister showed me that I actually had an option that my parents never told me about. I had a choice to make on whether or not I was going to embrace and own this faith that I was raised with, or, as she showed me, you can walk away from it. You can leave it, and you can do whatever you want to do. And I found myself, and it's weird maybe because I'm a pastor's kid and I probably shouldn't have some counseling and therapy, but I found myself remembering this choice. It was like a fork in the road. What am I going to do? Am I going to try to embrace this and own this faith, make it my own, or am I just going to go ahead and, and leave it and go my own way? And, and I remember thinking this is not an easy choice no matter which path I pick. Each path has its own challenges associated with it, right? So like if I was to leave the faith, I'm not going to continue down this path. Man, that's really a big challenge because my whole worldview, how I think about life, is so connected to this belief in God that it has actually infiltrated how I look at all of life. 
right? So if I am no longer going to follow this God and, and I'm not going to uh, trust him with my life and I'm not going to have a confidence, well, then I got questions about what happens after this life. I've got questions about what the meaning of life is. And, and I've been so oriented around having a God in my life that he would be the person that would define right from wrong. I now have to find a new standard for my own ethics. What is right? What is wrong? What do I base these things on? And I would need to find something to find hope and meaning and fulfillment and fruitfulness in because that would have been centered on Christ and doing things his way. But if I'm walking away from that, I need to find whatever's going to bring me happiness and, and what can bring me fulfillment. Like to walk away from the faith, this isn't going to be easy because this is so integrated into me. I'm going to have to think differently about my biology. If God didn't create me, then how did I get here? I'm going to have to think about history different because I've always seen it from the perspective of Jesus died for a whole broken humanity. But if Jesus didn't die for a broken humanity, then how do I view the past? How do I look at things? How do I approach psychology and sociology? How do I approach life? So to leave the faith, man, this is going to be difficult because I'm going to need to unwind a lot of things that I've learned. I'm going to need to deconstruct a little bit so that I can find a new way forward in leaving the faith. That's a challenge. That's not going to be easy. But my other option is I can embrace it. And some people are like, well, that would be way easier, right? You don't have to undo all this. But it, too, has its challenges. It's not going to be easy to embrace this because I'm walking around believing things that I've never investigated. I don't even know where I picked them up. I just kind of grew up in church. And so all the church people stood here, so I just stood here, too. I never thought through this position, but this is the position everybody took, and I felt comfort in the masses of other people who are standing here. I didn't work out a position. I just accepted the position everybody gave me. And to now say, why do I stand where I stand? And should I stand here? And should these people who are around me, are they in a the right spot? What do I really believe about things? And so to embrace the faith, make it my own, I needed to be willing to ask some very hard questions. I needed to be willing to ask things like, is Christianity just a myth? Did someone just make this whole thing up? I mean, I know that I've been taught to believe it my whole life, but I've never really investigated it. Do I only believe because my parents believe? What about other world religions? Maybe I've just been brainwashed into thinking one way. Maybe I should explore some other ways. Is Jesus really the only way to God? Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Are we really banking on a human dying and coming back to life and that's the whole thing? Am I embracing that? Like, that sounds like a weirdo. Like, that's, what are we talking about? Like, I know in the church world that's normal, but we're talking about worshiping a dead guy who's alive. Like, wait a second. I got to process some things. I need to be willing to ask some hard questions. Is, is my faith just a way of coping with my weakness? Do only weak people have faith? Where are the strong people who have faith? And what exactly do I believe about the Bible? My dad's always said that we can trust it, but can we? How did this thing even come about? Did God write it? Did man write it? Why is there a debate over what books are included and which ones aren't? I got some questions. And if I'm going to make this faith my own, I'm going to have to be willing to ask some hard questions. But not only do I need to be willing to ask the hard questions. See, I think asking the hard questions, that's the easy part. The difficult part is actually finding the answers pursuing the answers, and living in the tension of the unknown until I'm able to find an answer 
that satisfies. From personal experience, it is much easier just to ask the question and not pursue the answer. It's easier just to get stuck kind of in a holding pattern of skepticism, never really landing anywhere. Questions by themselves can become barriers to doubt, to faith, no doubt. But, but questions that lead to answers, I believe, are pathways to God himself. As, as I witnessed my sister leave the faith, uh, eventually my cousin left the faith, and then many others left the faith that I, I personally knew, I'm going to be honest, it stirred a lot of questions inside of me. And at the same time, uh, culturally in Christianity in the 1990s and the early 2000s, there was this movement that we now consider the purity culture movement that was coming in. And, and it was driven with a good heart. People were really concerned about the effects of uh, sex outside of marriage. There was unwanted teen pregnancies. There was STDs. There was AIDS. There was all these abortions taking place. So the church was like, we've got to do something about this. So they uh, said, we're going to began to push that people make vows of purity, that they're going to save themselves. And they took what is the Christian ethic for sexuality, which is that we are to abstain from sex in all of its forms until we're married. They took what has been the traditional position on sexual ethics that's been a part of every branch of Christianity since Jesus, whether you want to go Eastern Orthodox, uh, Catholic, Protestant, they all embrace the same thing, abstinence, from sexual activity until marriage, but then they added to it, and they said, well, if you're not going to have sex until you're married, you probably shouldn't date anybody. And then if you're not going to date anybody, well, definitely don't ever hold hands. Don't ever think about kissing a girl good night. Don't you dare think about it. Maybe you shouldn't even have any friends that are of the opposite sex. You're likely to think a thought you shouldn't think, and that would be like the end of the world. And so without having an ill-intended heart, it became this thing to where virginity and saving yourself for marriage became like, if you weren't a virgin, you were like, that was like the unforgivable sin. Like, you'd be better off putting heroin in your arms and, you know, doing anything else other than that. And so it became this weird, skewed system. And then this is what I'm growing up in. And I'm in my teenage years, and you know what I'm starting to think? I'm thinking, you know what? I don't want to just embrace things just because that's what everybody's doing. And so I'm pushing back on some of this stuff. I'm like, wait a second. What are we saying? What are we talking about? I mean, I'm at the youth conferences, and we're all signing the purity cards, and everybody's got the little purity rings on. And while, yes, I understand the intent of it, there's also some pushback to, like, am I going to embrace this for me, or is this just what's going on. So I got questions. I'm a young person in the church, PK, growing up, and I got people I love and care about who've walked away from the faith, and I'm being taught things that I'm not so sure where I should land. I was filled with questions. As some of you know, because you've watched me grow up, I didn't abandon the church. I never stopped praying. I became what maybe some might call the prototypical believer. I went to Bible college, and I've worked most of my adult life at a church. And when I see people that I grew up with that were 
were in the church when I was a kid, sometimes they'll come up to me, they'll give me a real big smile and a big hug, and it's almost as if they're saying, yeah, we made a good one here. And while there's a part of me that probably enjoys that attention and praise, there's also a part of me that, that realizes that I've almost unknowingly villainized those who left the faith. I almost began to treat them as though they were traitors, that they left us. And there was a little part of me that began to kind of resist them. I began to look down on them, almost turn my nose up at these people that we might even call prodigals. And I find myself, as we enter into this series called To My Friend Who Left the Faith, feeling as though I need to tell my friends who I witnessed leave the faith that I'm sorry. I'm sorry I looked down on you. I'm sorry I avoided you because I didn't really want to hear you. I just wanted you to hear me. I'm sorry that I haven't been a better friend. And I don't want to continue to make that same mistake. That's why we're doing this series called To My Friend Who Left the Faith. See, as a millennial, which is what I am, as a millennial pastor who's wrestled with spiritual doubt and insecurity, I want this church to be a safe space for people who are skeptics, for people who are doubters, and for prodigals to wrestle with their faith. I don't want them to have to leave to wrestle. I want to create a space where they can be here and they can be loved and they can be cared for while they ask the hard questions. And over the next few weeks, I think that there's some things that I have to offer because I'm someone who has asked hard questions, but I didn't leave the faith. And I think that there's a way to ask questions without losing your faith. But before we get into all of that, and that's some of the weeks to come, I want those of us in the room who call ourselves Christians to check maybe our heart today, to look at maybe some things that might reside in there that aren't from God. And so this morning, I want to revisit a story that's familiar to you if you've grown up in church. It's the story or a parable that Jesus shared in Luke chapter 15. And we're going to read this from the message paraphrase today. And here's what it says. It says, then he said, Jesus, he said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. And it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through the country, and he began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to the fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, 
I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And so he got up and he went home to his father. Verse 20 says that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. He'd already prepared it. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But, but the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring out a clean set of clothes and, and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. <laughs> We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. Now, all this time, his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. And as he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over to one of the houseboys, he asked, Hey, what's going on? He told him, Your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he's home, safe and sound. <coughs> Barbecue beef is always as good, isn't it? <laughs> Labor Day, let's go. Verse 28. The older brother, instead of getting excited about the beef brisket and the baked beans, stomped off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you a moment of grief. But you have, have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours, who's thrown away your money on whores, shows up, and you go all out with a feast? His father said, son, son, you don't understand. You're, you're with me all the time in everything that I have. Everything that is mine, it, it, it's yours. But this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate this brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. In the 17th century, Rembrandt painted the return of the prodigal son. We'll put a picture of it up here for you. 17th century, this is old. This painting visualizes a young man kneeling before his father in a posture of humility. The son who abandoned his family spent his inheritance on wild living, and he now returns destitute, empty-handed. And in the painting, we can only see kind of the side of the prodigal's face, but even this glance shows the humility and meekness that he's came with. The son's clothes look more like rags than like a wardrobe. The sandal on his right foot is actually disintegrating. The father's face also lacks a certain amount of of precision, yet all these details or the lack of details are sort of the point. Uh, Rembrandt's style of painting forces us to look down actually at the father's hands resting on his son's shoulders. 
And of all the items in the painting and the people in this image, the hands are the most lifelike. The father, who is kind of a stand-in for God, provides a vision of restoration. The son's going to receive new clothes, a lavish feast, and even a place to sleep. More importantly, he's going to receive his dad again. He's forgiven. But just as vital, however, is the figure standing to the right of the father and son. Here looms the elder brother, the brother who chose to remain beside his father despite the sibling running away with half the farm. And while the father in the painting bends down to accept his son, the elder brother stands tall. His clothes are regal, even majestic. And the elder brother clasps his hands in judgment. And the painting captures a crucial element of the parable. Wade Bearden in his book says this, We call this story the parable of the prodigal son, but we should really call it the parable of the prodigal sons. You see, it's possible to be a prodigal without ever leaving home. Just look at the older brother with all his vanity and his lack of grace. The late Tim Keller points out that they both, both sons, were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or even by keeping all of them diligently. The revelation that I've had in my confession today is that I've been the elder brother. And I don't want to be. And my question for you is, have you been guilty of being the elder brother as well? When you encounter individuals who have abandoned their childhood faith or are experiencing a deconstruction of sorts, what's your first impulse? Are you excited about the possibility of their return? Do you show them love as they consider their way forward, or or do you turn your noses up like the elder brother did in this parable? I think my challenge for for us today, and what I think what we're called to do, is that we must strive to be more like the father in the parable of the prodigal son and less like the elder brother. We must treat our friends who've left the faith with love and respect. Being eager to show them the same type of love that Jesus has shown to us. What's so good about the story of the parable of the prodigal son is that the father who represents God met the son right where he was. But he loved him too much to leave him there. To think that you can return to God but continue to live a wayward life is not true. There must be a change of heart. There must be a change of direction. I don't get to continue to call the shots 
and return to the Father. I have to lay down my rights and allow him to. And so let's not ever miss the fact that there is true repentance required and life change to return to the Father. You can come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. But our attitude towards those coming needs to be one of love and grace. I think that some of us, I'm going to get off of my notes for a minute. There's two times in Jesus' life that you actually have recorded in the Bible when God the Father audibly spoke to Jesus. We believe that God the Father probably spoke to Jesus more often, but there's just two recorded instances, right? One is at Jesus' baptism. You know, it's this moment where he goes under the water and he comes up and it says that a dove descended on him like the Holy Spirit, which wouldn't that be way more epic if it was like an eagle or a hawk and it flew right down and landed on his shoulder? I mean, I just picture some things. I grew up in church. I'm sorry. Um, It it was a dove, you know. It's a glorified pigeon coming down. Um, In that moment, God the Father spoke from heaven. Do you remember what he said? This is my son and who am I'm well pleased The only other time that God the Father speaks from heaven, he says essentially the same thing. It's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is up there. He's got his three bros with him, right? He's got Peter, James, and John. And they have this crazy moment in which all of a sudden Moses is appearing and Elijah's appearing. And Peter's like, let's live here forever. (laughs) This is awesome. And all of a sudden God from heaven says, no, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Like, you're, you're, you're getting off a little bit, Peter. Here, here's the crazy thing that we don't tend to think about. When Jesus is being baptized, he has done zero miracles. He has done nothing that is impressive. The three years of ministry that he's getting ready to have is beginning with this moment. And before he's done anything, before he's been faithful to obey, before he's done anything, what does the Father say to him? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I think that some of us have missed the true gospel. It starts with God's acceptance, not your performance. I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that's like, no, I need to earn God's acceptance. Jesus, just give me a minute. Let me read my Bible every day. Jesus, let me pray. Jesus, let me, let me have some emotional moments in your presence. Jesus, let me like help bring somebody who doesn't know you in to know you. And then, God, you can say, hey, well done. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I'll receive it then. I want to earn it. But if you're trying to earn God's acceptance, I hate to tell you, but you've never accepted the gospel because you can't earn it. That would be a legalistic performance-based faith, and that's not what we have. See, when the son returned to the father, the father accepted him. And he gave him an identity. Put a ring on his finger. You're my son. Put new clothes on him. You're not dressed that way. You're not living that way no more. I don't know what your past has been, but we're not going to continue that. When we come to him, we are given a new identity. Have you accepted the new identity that God has for you? It's not going to be based on your performance. It's going to start when you don't deserve it because he loved you when you didn't love him. Can we accept who he calls us to be? 
And can we invite others to allow God to speak identity over them? It's the game changer. And we should be so celebratory when anyone who's left the faith comes back. We don't look down on them. We feel for them. We hurt for them. And let's be a church that provides space for people to wrestle with these hard questions. Our society's so weird right now. People think that if you, you can put me in a, a position when it comes to abortion and, and unborn lives, if you know where I stand on that, then you know where I stand on about 10 other things. You try to categorize me. Listen, the way of Jesus is not <laughs> going to fit in a political party in America. The way of the kingdom is much bigger. And the resistance that some people have to the church is understandable. I don't know at what point in time all Christians became Republicans either. I understand why some people might resist and have questions. Can we provide space for people to wrestle with some things, to grow and to become? Let's not be the elder brother. Let's be more like the father. And it's possible that you might be here today and you might feel as though you're more like the prodigal son. You've been wrestling with some stuff. Maybe you've wandered away from God. Perhaps you felt shame any time you think about your past. But, but the good news is this, is that Jesus extends the invitation to follow him to everyone without discrimination. You are welcome in his kingdom. You are welcome here. No matter your past or your present, no matter how wounded or messed up you may be, nothing has disqualified you from answering Jesus' invitation to be his disciple. And despite maybe how the church has treated you or the things that you've been exposed to, I want you to know that God loves you more than you realize. Would you all pray with me this morning? God, I thank you that you are so patient and kind with us. And God, my heart goes out to those who've been hurt in the past, those who've been able to walk away from the faith because of whatever the reason. God, I just, I ask that, Lord, you would allow there to be a, a new start available to them. May they not feel as though they're too far gone. May they not feel as though that their past has disqualified them. But I pray, Lord, that anyone who's left the faith, whether it be in recent times or as a child, I pray, Lord, that you would just allow your Holy Spirit to gently draw them back here. And may we as a church love them right where they're at. And may we walk with them forward into the future you have. And God, I pray for those of us who have been a bit like me, where we've been maybe looking down upon those who've left the faith. Maybe we've been a little hurt by them. Maybe we've been frustrated. I just ask, God, that you would help change our heart to be more like yours. I pray that we would see people the way that you see them. May we not respond out of our flesh or our pain or our hurt, but, Lord, may we respond and see people through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of your son, Jesus, who came and died on a cross to forgive us of our sins and to make us right with you. I pray, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us to move forward in our faith. And may you help us to embrace it and make it our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.